Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening and welcome to the program. Tonight, my very special guest is the phenomenally talented Martin Graff. He will share poetry from his book, The Face Zone, Surreal Daydreams to Trip Your Imagination, and original piano compositions from his album, Trips for Piano. Martin, welcome to the program. Oh, man, thanks for having me. I couldn't be happier (laughs) to be here, my friend. You are more than welcome. I've been waiting on this for a long time, as you know. (laughs) Yeah. So it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Let me ask you, here you are, again, phenomenally talented, so much going on. What inspires you? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I got, you know, that's on my mind when I wake up every day. You know, I kind of need a mission. I need a mission to direct myself through the mangrove of this life, honestly. I'd say right. um, my mission, simply put, is to vibrate eardrums and touch hearts. That's the driving mm-hmm. agenda. I believe in this content, you know, like a doctor with an important cure. <laughs> of course, I'm not really curing anything, but I try to produce an entertaining and useful spiritual elixir of sorts. And uh, All right. I'd say my inspiration, I mean my own burning internal drive to think, create, and express. Oh, I like that very much, my friend. I like that a lot. You know, it's so funny when you think about poems. Some poems are so esoteric that you really, really don't understand them. It takes takes too much. How important is accessibility? And here's the question. Should one have to work hard to solve a poem? Of course, any artist can do anything they want, any reader or listener can seek out anything they want. But for me, um, accessibility is entirely important. I mean, as a writer, uh, it's important to me that a text is accessible, uh, not devoid of literary finesse, uh, but not requiring an English-to-English translation either. Mm, Yes, Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. In my own work, I seek to uncover and express, uh, I guess what I would call distilled essential truths, uh, and I guess clarity better serves that mission. I guess as a reader, I appreciate it too. Uh, when I think of my favorite authors, they are those who make bold observations and have a way with words, and neither of which mm-hmm. require convoluted linguistics. I mean, if, all if right. I mean, if there's a real substance and fire, there's really no need to camouflage it in ornamentation, just like you don't over-season an excellent cut of steak. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, true. I like that. I like that. I like that a lot. You know, you are a busy man. How do you know when a project is finished? Yeah, that's a good question, right, in the arts. I mean, it's like, if you're building a house or, you know, a hot rod, yeah, it's like once it's uh, on the road or you can live in it and turn the lights on, then you know it's done. But with the arts, I guess it's not so cut and dry. Um, yes. I guess, it, I guess if you're talking about an individual piece, 
like, you know, one of my drawings or a poem or a piano composition, um, I'd say it's done once the message has been communicated fully, articulately, mm-hmm. e- efficiently, movingly. I don't sit with things forever and ever. I kind of charge ahead hungry to the end and then pass back over it a few times to tweak the flare or to poke the fire a bit more. Um, if you're talking about like the larger projects with the face zone and trips for piano, I would say those are never really finished. You know, they, they get mm. chunked along the way into books and albums. Um, but beyond that, it's really an ongoing trip for me until, uh, I guess mortality forces me onto the exit ramp. <laughs> oh, mortality. That's a huge word right there. Mortality. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when you think, I think you're very successful. <laughs> you've done so much. I mean, you're growing, you're, you're moving, you're, like I say, you're doing different things. What does literary success look like for you? <clears throat> Yeah, I like that question, because that's another one that really lingers over my head, uh, especially during these pandemic times where I've had more and more time to linger in isolated spaces and kind of, uh, you know, ruminate on on the meaning of my life. I I would say, um, so long as I'm making top notch art and there's performances on my calendar and people are showing up to experience all these things, then generally I'm succeeding, right? I'm uh, mm-hmm. I'm still working to expand my reach, so I'm not necessarily yes. as quanti- quantitatively successful as I'd like to be yet, but I'm mm-hmm. kind of like a uh, snowball getting larger as I roll uphill. Oh, wow. You've got a way with words. <laughs> oh, you've got a way with words, my friend. <laughs> well, I everyone. Hope so. I hope so. You do. <laughs> you do. Otherwise, without further ado, <laughs> without further ado, I know why you're here. You're here to listen to Martin Graff. Martin, I'd like to turn the program over to you to take us on a journey. Okay. All right. Well, let's start out. I mean, I figured we'd treat this tonight as if we were all uh, seated in a space with a stage and I were, you know, doing my live act. So, Uh, I usually start out with a piano piece before any of the words and artwork begin. Uh, So let's start out um, with a piece called, uh, for my album Trips for Piano, called Meditative Coming Down. All right.
So everybody should be pretty mellow and relaxed now. <laughs> so um, as we discussed, Michael, since uh, usually on the stage show um, and also in the book as well, each of these speaking pieces is accompanied by some original artwork, which is sometimes directly referenced in the piece. So you had asked me um, before I do these <clears throat> to kind of describe the artwork uh, a little bit. So people can imagine that. And then, um, you know, those that want to investigate a little more and check out the live show or the book can then actually like follow up and see what this stuff looks like. Um, so how does that sound? Sounds fantastic. All right. So this first piece is called Pierre is Strange. And by the way, the reason the whole project is called the Face Zone is because all of the uh, art pieces involve a face of some kind, be human, uh, animal, alien, or abstract. But there's some kind of face and caption that's the artwork, and then on the opposing page, there's the piece. So for Pierre is Strange, just kind of imagine, if you will, sort of a caricature, a surreal caricature of a Frenchman uh, in odd neon colors with sort of a warping effect on it and a beret. I guess you kind of need to really see it to digest it. But underneath that painting, it says, Pierre is Strange for now. And here is the piece. Everything is surreal at first. Drive a baby under the track lighting of a freeway tunnel with the sunroof open and watch his face transform as if seeing God. Forty years later, he'll do a dead-eyed daily commute along that same stretch, unmoved as a Pac-Man frog, because each experience has a perceptual contour of spike and decay. Otherwise, honeymoons would last forever. The first hit wouldn't be free, and the latest fashion would still be Cro-Magnon chic. We thrive on the right kinds of change. Discovering punk rock in high school was a glorious exploding gift from an alternate dimension after years of enduring the pedestrian sedation of Top 40. These days, my favorite reality shifts occur through travel, where a foreign landscape becomes home over time, and home feels foreign upon returning. Then reality reestablishes again planning our next departure. Long before our body collapses, our soul withers when starved of novelty. The agony of solitary confinement hinges on indefinite sameness. But the unincarcerated also cage themselves by uncritically settling into mind-numbing routine low boiling in the gradual cook of their rerun days until retirement hits with scarce time and energy for a spiritual recovery. Now is the time for new, for getting a better job, for taking a different way home at least, for catching a buzz, for trying sobriety, time to paint with the other hand, to be on the bottom or in front during the act. Time for a strange conversation with an unusual stranger. Today is the day to act on curiosity and inject some life into our lives. Poem. Hmm. All right. Okay. So try some new things, y'all, myself included. You know, sometimes these... Um, 
Well, first and foremost, not sometimes, I guess, first and foremost, these uh, little these poems and drawings are kind of meditations on things that I'm sorting out. And there's there's sort of my own kind of roadmap to going forward. But hopefully you all get something uh, useful and entertaining as well. Here's the next one. The art, this one is called Zen and the Art of Washing Machine Maintenance. Um, this one, the artwork to this one is a, uh, a digital painting of a photo of me when I was three or four years old, standing in my underwear, holding the detached agitator to a washing machine with a big <laughs> smile on my face, wearing uh, bifocal glasses with like a, uh, you know, a bowl haircut. <laughs> but anyway. Zen and the Art of Washing Machine Maintenance. When I was really little, the most unlikely mundane items mesmerized me. Appliances, mainly. My first fixation was our top-loading Whirlpool clothes washer. Its spin cycle was especially dramatic. The unbalanced feet wobbling violently across the floor like a furious yellow robot that shot fear into the pit of my stomach as it rampaged full of too many wet towels. When that wasn't happening, I would open the lid and watch this fascinating otherworldly contraption run fabrics through wash and rinse cycles, my imagination seeing a bottomless, roiling well of mysterious foamy plasma. I eventually memorized the different programs and would act them out by standing in the living room with an armful of clothes while churning and whirling like an agitator. My grandfather and I found a discarded one on the roadside during one of our walks. For weeks, I carried it around with glee, proudly answering the doorbell with it in hand, which agitated my parents. Then I got off washing machines and turned to toilets eats with its own abstract face staring up from the bottom of the bowl. Ours had that flow system with a single hole above an upturned semicircle, which to me became a smiling porcelain cyclops with a literal shit-eating grin. The space heater in our garage encouraged another round of surreal daydreams. It was low, oblong, and housed in metal painted with fake wood grain. The front had a grill pattern of pulled diamonds over a metallic chamber protecting the heating element. Those angled interior surfaces reflected one another to create the impression of a glowing, copper-colored spaceship hallway going around blind, hexagonal corners on either end. In my head, I would shrink to miniature, climb to the guard in a special heat suit, and continue around those turns to explore the rest of the vessel and discover its ultimate destination. I still have an imagination, but miss the days when a simple visit to the bathroom, laundry, or garage could blow my mind. I've spent much of my adult life chasing that trip, trying to recreate the magic novelty of a beginner's point of view through art, music, travel, chemicals, and a string of honeymoon periods. Sometimes getting close, mostly realizing that you can't go back as long as time goes on. But we can glance in that direction along the way to keep sight of our earliest luminescence so that it continues inspiring us wherever we are 
and lights a bro. Now go eat some acid and stare into a toaster oven. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> okay. Next one is uh, a bit shorter, almost a, not quite a haiku, but a bit shorter. Uh, This one's called Lucky Ham. And for this one, let's just say um, it's a uh, digital painting I did based on uh, Ringo Starr. (laughs) But it's not just about him. It's It's about any Lucky Ham. All right, here we go. In the right place at the right time, and they know it. Unearned celebrity is the most insecure. So the conspicuously fortunate overstate themselves, babbling loudest and throwing all the glitter, camouflaging their mediocrity with flair. And it's that simple. (laughs) Don't show up without content, man. Don't show up without the heart of the project. All right, this next one. It's called, uh, well, for this next one, I'm just going to tell you the art first. So picture uh, a profile of a giraffe standing there, but then zoom in on it so you only see the neck. So you don't see the body and you don't see the head. You just see like the neck kind of a diagonally across the picture frame. And then beside that, it says, you can't crop a giraffe. And here we go. Allow me to explain You can't crop a giraffe. You can't make a cat follow the rules. Can't make a kazoo subtle and plaid always takes over the outfit. Weeds will continue to sprout wherever. As sand won't stay on the beach. As water finds its way out of any vessel. Every rumor spreads like fire. Like they'll never censor every curse word. You can't force art inside the lines. You can't keep a viral trend from its time. Nothing restrains true love or righteous revolution. And yet all poems must come to an end. Mm. (laughs) The end. All right. This next piece, um, the title's a little uh, misleading. It's called The Devil's Confessional. This one, uh, <laughs> this one is kind of one of my, um, I guess, just kind of idiosyncratic, r- uh, random uh, life observations. This one is actually about my, uh, you know, my memories going to amusement parks in the summer. So picture for the art for this one. There's just kind of this uh, diabolical uh, face with these kind of, like, crosses whirling around it on flames sort of like they're like it's it's supposed to be like an amusement park ride and next to it it says they came from miles around to ride the devil's confessional and then there's a second panel to the art which is just a little too hard to explain on air so if you get the book check out the website you'll see it but anyway here we go the devil's confessional amusement park is such a misnomer They should be called stress carnivals. When you break down the experience, it really is antagonistic. 
After an hour of highway maneuvering through 10,000 other assertive drivers with the same idea, you hand over more than an hour's pay to enter and fight for parking in a concrete matrix of hot, dense humanity. One stuffed sick with a pound of oil dough and purple you wait eternally in snaking airport-grade lines to get hurled around like laundry with a stomach and spine until you need a wastebasket or a chiropractor. Even the ride names promise abuse. It's a masochist's wonderland of threatening entrances labeled Madhouse, Power Surge, The Whip, The Scrambler, Human Slingshot, Wipeout, Kamikaze, Texas Skyscreamer, and the Zumanjaro Drop of Doom. Thinking back to all the hype, I never actually enjoyed Hershey, Six Flags, or Dorney Park. My initial excitement over their thrilling promises always morphed into anxiety the closer we got to the venue. The same dread as spotting a bully while approaching the middle school bus stop. And like a former bully, now middle-aged with minivan and dad bod, shuttered attractions take on a pathetic impotence. Only as menacing as the power we supply them. All right. And speaking of amusement parks and rides and whirling around in the summer, uh, this next piece uh, is a piece called Bombing at the Boardwalk. Um, the art for this one, uh, you can picture kind of a uh, maybe 10 to 12 year old, super pudgy faced, um, you know, just just kind of a sorry caricature of like an unpopular kid with like a beanie with a propeller on the top, just sort of like, you know, uncool to the max, um, you know, uh, like sort of like a Napoleon dynamite on steroids, maybe something like that. Um, that's the art that goes along with this. But the story is called Bombing at the Boardwalk. Between college semesters, a gang of us would go to the Jersey Shore. We were broke and obnoxious, so of course, we chose Wildwood. Only $75 a night at the Seahorse Motel, complete with meth-stained wood paneling, Deformed pull-out bed, a mini-freezer almost cold enough to make ice. There was also a five-foot-tall handyman rocking a mullet and glass eye who kept hanging around our room talking about strippers until we finally ditched him for the shady liquor store down the block where a one-armed elderly man in a mangled fedora sold us our underage rum. Later on, a couple of us headed over to the boardwalk for a rejection contest. The plan was to approach the most attractive women in sight, lay an intentionally awful pickup line on them, draw their disdain, and earn a point. Nothing insulting or threatening, just lame as possible, entirely at our own expense. Whoever got turned down the most times won. I don't, re I don't recall who became champion, but I remember one of my best lines aimed at a pair of ethereal blondes sitting down to look at the ocean. What's happening, ladies? A bench seats four. Would you like two more? 
They declined with a degree of astonished laughter that should have earned me bonus points. Then the tide shifted, and our rejection game won us acceptance when we encountered a group who loved the prank and began walking along with us as we tried it on more people. Eventually, we bumped into their friends and ended up with a dozen or so in our ironic group, roughly even between guys and girls. Feeling high with the wind at our backs, we surfed this rogue social wave back to our room at the seahorse, where somehow a bag of crazy wigs and a yoga mat came out. In no time, we were doing drunken calisthenics and partial drag at a dumpy hotel with total strangers. Awesome. Well, until Glass Joe came pounding on our door to keep the noise down, that was our nickname for the fake-eyed handyman. <laughs> what a ridiculous, beautiful memory. One that could never have happened had we packed our ego for the trip. When we let go of that bulky hindrance, it freed us to pick up spontaneous adventure, pure laughter, and shared joy, if not a hot date. A pretty sweet deal for 75 bucks a night. <laughs> you just never know, man. Sometimes you just got to get, get, get off of that exit ramp and just see what, see what that zip code has to offer. All right. All right, our next installment. Um, this piece is called It Is What It Is. For this one, uh, kind of, this is a tough one to describe. I'll do my best. Just kind of, <laughs> kind of picture, uh, you know, just a white background with a couple of beady eyes and like this mouth that sort of looks, um, sort of like the furry version of a walrus mouth, but like without the teeth and just like a way too long tongue hanging out. Uh, and below it, it says a blubbersome lozenge snarfer which at the moment makes zero sense, but may make about 5% more sense after the poem. Here we go. <laughs> Strap in. It is what it is. Words are potent. They both describe and shape our existence. I encourage my English students to find explicit, precise, nuanced language to articulate the salient qualities of the people, places, and things in their world. But there are certain entities and experiences that transcend description. So idiosyncratic, they become reference points to which others are compared. The energizing flavor of coffee, the manic cacophony of cicadas, the tactile satisfaction of popping bubble wrap, the exuberance of a middle school snow day, the smell of a car off the assembly line, the particular aesthetic of an old school porn mustache in a room with fake wood paneling, and this blubbersome lozenge snarfer. <laughs> I just love those uh, undefinables. You know, we got just, all these tools and words and lenses and brushes and just all these different things we can use to try to, you know, capture the sum total of uh, what's going on on this 
big ball of dirt. There's just some things that just become their own reference points. I love that. Okay. We're going to do uh, – the next one's going to be speaking piece, and then we're going to hit the world with some more notes, some more music. But first, we're going to do one called In the Mood Light. Um, the art for this one, I think in the center of the image is like uh, this androgynous, uh, joyful face with eyes closed and kind of a, um, a mouth that's just sort of in, in mid-uncontainable laughter, and there's this swirl of um, primary colors uh, engulfing the face. And below it, it just says, in the mood light. And now let's hear the words. Atmosphere is everything. The psychological medium in which all situations unfold. The difference between loving and leaving a party. Passing or failing the test. Between that first kiss and another hug. And nothing affects atmosphere so much as lighting. Stick employees under fluorescent tubes and the reduced to serial numbers who dread every task. The same job near a sunny window is instantly more tolerable, more humane. Deep red lava lamps move me to smoke a flower. Switch to black light and chewing the mushrooms more like it. Ambiance is an underutilized variable in our daily life. Such a simple, overlooked way of elevating the mundane. Give it a try. Put a strobe in the shower. Hang a disco ball over your desk. Leave the string of Christmas blinkers up. Get your glasses rainbow tinted. Because living in grayscale inspires a less colorful existence. Yeah, amen to that. I'm always, uh, I, ever since I had my first apartment in my 20s, I, I just, I have colored lighting in every room. I'm always trying to like use space as a canvas. I just, uh, it opens up worlds, man, when you just do those little aesthetic <laughs> touches. It can really add some joy and inspiration to the most mundane of spaces. All right. Well, with that in mind, with feeling and light and color and warmth, um, let's try the next piano piece. Um, the title and tagline for this one are Flowers Open, the promise of beauty slowly unfolding.
All right. Okay. <clears throat> now that's the uh, the flowers have bloomed. <laughs> uh, those <laughs> colors have carried us to the next stage of our time together. I'm ready for the next uh, speaking piece, but uh, keep in mind, y'all, if you uh, if you want to talk to me or have a question or a comment or anything at all, I believe that uh, Michael, what's the number? Six four six seven eight seven one six three one. All right, man. And, but if you're enjoying the trip and you just want to kick back, that's cool, too. All right. This next one is called Trepidatious Mirage. This is also from the new book. By the way, everything I'm doing tonight is from my, uh, my third and newest, newest book. <laughs> that's great. Um, I, I, there is no nudity in the, uh, in the third book. Sorry for the misspeak there. Um, uh, maybe in volume four, but probably not. Uh, yeah, but anyway, the, the, the newest one, these are all th- pieces from the newest book. Um, so here's the next one. The art for this one, kind of picture like the image tearing and scratching through the page. And as it scratches through, it's kind of based on my face, but there's like my hands are kind of stretching my mouth, like kind of open in a box shape. And you can see all my teeth and I just look like a friggin' animal. And underneath it, it just says, uh, I do this to myself. And the piece, again, is called Trepidatious Mirage. Anxiety is omnipresent, a constant co-pilot as we navigate alarm clocks, traffic jams, jobs, politics, and relationships. Even our pastimes stir up stress, escalating to smashed game controllers, flipped card tables, and bench-clearing brawls. But anxiety makes everything worse, and it's a liar besides. The wake-up call isn't as taxing as the anticipatory tossing, turning, and timidly peeking to check how many precious minutes remain until that 6 a.m. noise, when the ringing itself lasts just a few seconds. Likewise, the workday isn't so vast and intense if broken into passing moments and individual tasks. On election day, some healthy motivation gets butts off the couch. That furious red-blue tribalism, though, it shuts down needed cooperation and ultimately society. The way it catastrophes disagreement at the foul line or in the bedroom annihilates any shared joy that brought you there in the first place. Why do we keep trusting our disquiet? This workaholic culture of never being caught up, the incessant ad campaigns reminding us how incomplete our lives are, maybe all the caffeine and high fructose corn syrup. After decades of dwelling, I'm anxious to be rid of it. There's a far more heartening reality to believe in. Yeah, maybe some maybe some of you have also, uh, you know, um, been through the gravel with sort of anxiety issues and the projections and all the stuff that comes along with this uh, this gift slash complication of the human consciousness. <laughs> this next one is a short one. Um, the the art for this one this one is 
I can't believe I'm going to, it just sounds, it's like one of these things you read on paper. It's in context. It's great. But you just like kind of read it like on paper is fact. It's absolutely ludicrous, but this one's called cheerleader eater. And the art for this one is just imagine this. Uh, well, I guess you can't really, but it, what it is, is this kind of uh, ghoulish cartoonish monster kind of thing with lots of teeth and drool and beady eyes and the thing that it says under it in this dripping font is last thing the cheerleader sees upon pulling the shower curtain to step out horror fiction loves to pulverize beauty not so different from nonfiction, really deadlier to be hot than homely All right. <laughs> As both a student of horror cinema and the world, I find those three lines to be unfortunately true. All right, our next piece. Um, it's called Tender Little Geekling, whatever the frig that is. Well, what that is is this uh, image of uh, kind of picture um, sort of a demented, more buck-toothed uh, version of a fraggle maybe. Um, anyway, one of those things that's adorable and hideous at the same time, uh, this piece is called, uh, Tender Little Geekling. Smallness seems inversely related to ugliness and tends to neutralize otherwise unattractive features. The very same qualities that repel us in large creatures become tolerable, even adorable in tiny ones. The fattest baby is first to be fawned over, but if she stays that way, she'll be last to the prom. The squashed, salivary nature of a pug is irresistible, while the equally droopy walrus is far less endearing up close. E.T. was a slimy, gangly bowel movement with a kazoo voice, but he was totally cute related to H.R. Giger's H.R. Giger's towering exoskeletal alien. When he's full grown, we'll likely flee in revulsion from this awkward buck-toothed monstrosity. For now, he's just a vulnerable little weirdo crying out for a coochie coo. <laughs> you know, it's interesting for the times. I don't mean to like... Uh, try to jump on some kind of trendy bandwagon, but it honestly did just occur to me, you know, I'm thinking of the virus that's going around, even though I think we are turning a positive corner with it. You know, that little shit, man. <laughs> it's like, watch mm -hmm. out for that. Watch out for that little shit. That's the stuff that can really sneak up on you the worst. Okay. Um, it's called the works. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that despite my, despite my linguistic Kung Fu is beyond me to describe what this image is. Uh, it's just, you just got to see it uh, to, to believe it. But I will say the caption says a duck, a DJ, a Joshua tree and the rabies virus were teleported at the same time. The piece is called the works. Here we go. Everything has been done already, leaving us to deconstruct and reassemble the past for contemporary variations on classic themes. Futons, horror comedies, Buffalo Ranch Doritos, and Sporks. 
certain winning combinations become their own enduring element, like MMA and drag queens, while pumpkin spice spam and rap metal are insufferable crimes against humanity. (laughs) Science is always eager to stir things up, mixing and matching organic materials as if they were outfits. First broccolini, finally cyborgs. The future is going to be one hell of a remix. All right. This next one is called His Varicose Reputation. For this one, I uh, the artwork is kind of like this... Um, it's not quite anime style. It's kind of its own style, but it's a sketch of something kind of this adolescent character looking hard to the side, fearfully of something that he's, you know, got his, his sights set on and he's got these kind of odd uh, uh, veins in his cheeks. <laughs> his, his varicose reputation. We've been socialized to doubt ourselves and ridicule one another. It starts in grade school, that merciless gauntlet of teasing and bullying. Then comes the barrage of ads, both creating and then marketing to our insecurities, reinforcing them in perpetuity. By adulthood, derogatory gossip remains so prevalent that we purchase hard copies in the checkout line and develop calluses from clicking on an endless stream of scandalous links demeaning accusatory headlines determining the fate of elections, careers, and lives. You can articulate the most brilliant, viable plan to save humanity, and no one would hear it for the spinach stuck in your teeth. Trained in shame. It is so much easier to earn a bad rap than a sincere accolade that we take cover behind clicks, brand names, and symbols, let T-shirts and bumper stickers express our opinions and count on spokespeople to relay our interests. We tone down our true colors and apologize for our defining idiosyncrasies. Toward what greater good do we outsource self-worth? Is the status quo worth preserving when the most imperviously confident personalities have the least to be proud of? I mean... I have yet to meet a humble asshole. When we contextualize and reject unconstructive criticism, we disarm our detractors and empower our potential. This liberated space is where dreams materialize. It's where visionaries see farthest, needed leaders find courage, and legends emerge. So step up and step out. Go to the nude beach and jiggle that girth. Ask her out before someone worse does. Damn the polls and vote your conscience. Amplify your voice and stand firm in the spotlight. Life in the shadows is undoubtedly safer, but it's a hell of a lot darker. Step out into the light, folks. Hmm. All right, we got two left. I'm going to reverse the order that we originally had planned. That's not going to matter. I think it's going to be better. That's why I'm doing it. All right, so the uh, penultimate poem is called 
Shakespeare in the Shitter. And the art for this one is just quite simply a photorealistic digital painting of uh, William Shakespeare kneeling in a bathroom stall, getting ready to like write some business. And he's got this thought bubble over him. And in this like old uh, script, as he's holding the quill pen, it says, shall I compare thee to a summer bidet? <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm a connoisseur of men's groom graffiti. It's one of the best parts of going out, really. That cryptic inside ridicule that only comes from drunken lack of censorship. The grammatically incorrect hubris over the reader's phallic inferiority. And most of all, a calling out of all our moms. I especially love the dialogues unfolded over months and years. Each contribution in a new font, like a pre-internet chat thread on who's doing what to whom and their mom. Everything so concise due to pressures of time and smell. Obnoxious, hurried haikus. Does any of this even happen in the women's room? You can gauge the level of a place by its patrons' messaging. I'd much rather hang out in the joint featuring Mary Poopins, the log father, and Forrest Dump than the one stating, Seth rules and was here. I've heard some really nice places don't even have anything scribbled on the walls. People want to express themselves, and given a venue, they will. Now that we've all got one in the palm of our hand, I miss the days when you had to venture out to a restaurant, bar, or club, and then answer nature's call that happened upon the random tabloid musings of anonymous America, akin to finding a coin on the beach. With so many walls on which to incessantly post, the virtual world has turned that beach coin to hot sand in our shoe and sent the quality of our collective discourse straight down your grandmother's moldy butt crack. All right. <laughs> the last piece I'm going to do. Um, Actually, before the last piece I'm going to do, I'm going to make my final announcements here because I think it's a nice time to tell some people some big things that are coming up that they might be able to, uh, um, you know, help me uh, revel in and, uh, you know, uh, support. So um, the first thing is uh, you can, if, you're, if you like what you're hearing tonight and you're hearing it for the first time and you're dying to see this artwork, um, my uh, book is available on Amazon.com. You can simply look up The Face Zone by Martin Graff, and it's a series. There's uh, three of them, uh, a white cover, a black cover, and a red cover. The red cover is the newest one uh, where all the pieces from tonight have come from. Um, you can get the album Trips for Piano on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, um, and you can also uh, get a CD from me if you want by going to Trips for piano.com um i am going to be performing at the anthonium in alexandria on may 24th um where i'll be uh actually uh another person is going to perform with me the very talented Dwayne lawson brown um but i'll be doing a you know 45 minute set uh headlining of uh you know the uh spoken word of the projected art and piano 
I'll be doing another set at Bus Boys and Poets in Sherlington um, on May 2nd. And um, finally, I have been nominated unexpectedly, much to my surprise, for the best classical artist uh, in the D.C. area on the D.C. Whammy Awards. So um, if you go to their website, um, let me actually get that for you right now. I had it, but yeah, if you just look up the D.C. Whammy Awards, W-A-M-M-I-E-S, um, you can uh, check out the categories and uh, vote for me if you like and kind of help me grow this dream. Um, so with all that barcode kind of stuff taken care of so I don't forget, um, we can move into the last couple of things. All right. The last piece is a piece called Marty's Song. Uh, the artwork for this one, um, I took an old photograph of myself from the 90s, back when I had the, like, Franz Liszt uh, shoulder-length piano hair flipping all over the place, um, a picture that was taken for me at a distance, and I took it and kind of turned it into this uh, really high-contrast, kind of other-universe kind of looking thing that's in hard black and white but there's all this beautiful liquid color exploding out of the lid of the piano. Uh, and at the bottom, it just says Marty's song. And, uh, this is a piece uh, that's about that. So here we go. Playing the piano is a long-term relationship, a commitment to excellence, the ultimate focus for a restless light. It's going all in with your whole mind, core, four limbs and ten fingers, first exploding into a cheetah sprint, then sticking a butterfly landing on a wisp of grass. It's a transcendental marriage of soul and mechanics that conjures rainbows from strokes of black and white and raises glorious mountain ranges out of the ordinary floor beneath. Making this music is the opposite of death. Like the centrifugal force around the sharpest bend of the greatest roller coaster. A reharmonizing of my most tumultuous internal cacophonies and maybe yours. So listen up as I bang on this gong from the gods. As I sound the call of my life force from the most resonant place I can find. As I sing Marty's song. And with that... Let's cross over into a piece called Into Crossing an Interior Threshold. Let it take you wherever you like.
right. Okay. Oh. All right. Martin, what can I say? Well, I mean, you're the boss. I guess you can say whatever you want, man. (laughs) That is true. That was absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful from A to Z. That was it. Well, the the sound is still fresh in people's mind. I did come across that uh, website. If you liked that and you're in the Maryland, Virginia, or D.C. area and you want to help me get to the next round, that um, website to vote for me for the uh, Whammy Awards is whammiesdc.org. That's spelled W-A-M-M-I-E-S-D-C.org. And the voting uh, is through January 30. First, and if I make it, that'll just uh, help me vibrate some more eardrums. Um, that's well, all. That's all it's about for me. That's it. Well, let's help this gentleman win a whammy. Vote, good people. Vote for Martin Graff. He's yeah, incredible. The snowball <laughs> is rolling uphill for sure, man. <laughs> you know, there's so much I want to ask you, but I know for sake of time I can't. But one question, one question. Has one of your poems or musical compositions ever frightened or humbled you? One of yours. Hmm. I don't know that I would use those verbs but I yes. would definitely, I would definitely use the verb self-educated. Like, okay, I, I like that. I, I think the as much as anything. Um, first of all, I don't pre- whether it's an anecdote or an observation. I don't bother presenting it to the world unless I think the world could have a use for it, right? I, I try to avoid like self self-indulgent oh, private stuff. But like most of these, you know they're really just meditations on things that I'm working out and kind of observing, Mm. figuring out about the world and figuring out myself. So in that regard, sometimes I'll find myself in a life situation where I feel a little bit off the rails. My equilibrium's not quite there. And I'm like, you know, dude, didn't you like kind of write about this in piece X, Y, or Z? Come on, man, take your own advice. And then that kind of helps me. Oh, wow. That's not to, I that's like not that to say so I'm much. A, that's, that's not to say I'm an island or like a node or something, you know, it's just like, you know, I, of course, it's, it's, I, I learn things from other people, life experience, you know, whatever, but it's like, yeah, as I, as I put it down on paper, I'm kind of working through that stuff. Maybe it's some other, uh, you know, artists and numerous media can relate to that. Mm. You know, I've got the biggest smile on my face because I, one, I am so glad that I know you. Two, just listening to you talk and share your way of being is just, it's just nice. It's just nice. I I like it. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. That's all I can say. I want to thank you so much for being with me tonight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just if I can, I'll just try to make a quick response to that. I think, you know, know, when people have, um, you know, when art is inextricably, woven into one's life um, experience and just their kind of existence, I think some really good things happen. I think art can bring so much to a person's life um, in creating it and absorbing it. And it's, 
you know, I look at it as not so much as art, not so much as a series of finished projects, but it's kind of as a lifestyle and sort of a way of thought. So, yeah, I think uh, you and me and, and everybody listening can really, you know, if you can find that vein and flow through it, man, add years to your life. <laughs> oh, wow. I like that. Well, to my listening audience, we did it again. Fantastic guests. I want to thank you for tuning in. And as I share with you every week, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. I say good night. Take care of yourselves. Until next time, I'm Michael Anthony Ingram. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.